it's not often that we sing a song together and I can hear all of you are even louder than what I hear right in front of me up here. And so that is really cool. You guys are worshiping the Lord this morning. And so awesome job being here, lifting up the name of Jesus Christ together and singing uh, to him. And in a moment, we're going to transition to hearing from the word of God. And so we have um, one of our elders, Gary Beyer, up here. Uh, Give a hand for Gary because we're excited that he's up here. Awesome. Awesome. Gary's going to be praying for the sermon, praying for our time as we hear from the Word of God together. And so, Gary, I'll hand it over to you. You can say something if you want, or you can just pray, pray us in. So, <laughs> All right. Well, I just want to say good morning to you all and how grateful I am for this family, for this body, and for this church. And so I am grateful for our pastors, for our worship leaders, for our ministers, for everybody in children and youth who do such an awesome job in loving each other in this family. So I'm going to pray for Colin now, pray for the word, pray for us that we can receive it. Dear Heavenly Father, I am so grateful and so thankful for this day and this church. By your blessing, it has been planted. By your blessing, it is sustained. So thank you. We ask now your Holy Spirit to come be with us, to open up our hearts to the word, to open up our hearts to what Colin has to teach us, to open us our hearts to whatever it is you want us to hear today, God, whatever it is we need to do to have life change, God. I pray that you will impact our hearts and impact our minds today by the power of your Holy Spirit, and through the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. 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 Awesome. Yeah, give a hand for Gary. He is awesome. and Thank you. Gary has one of those, you know, he's not going to like that I'm continuing to talk about him up here, but Gary has one of those rare qualities that he can uh, challenge you and, and give you some, uh, some challenging words, and yet you still walk away just feeling like, wow, that guy loves me and cares about me. So he's really cool. So get some time with Gary if you don't know Gary, but looking around the room, most of you know Gary now that I look at it. So awesome, awesome. Hey, I, uh, I have the pleasure of sharing God's word with you today. My name's Colin. Um, if you've seen the last few of my talks last week and then a few weeks before that, um, I've started uh, realizing that I'm starting in kind of the same way, which is with a self-effacing story. Um, so I don't know what that's about, but I'm going to do the same thing today, and I'm going to tell you a story that doesn't really make me look very good. Um, but that's okay, because, you know, you're used to it by now. So, um, so a couple summers ago, my family and I, we went river rafting. And, uh, and don't get too excited, okay? We went river rafting on the Spokane River, so it's not like we're going on, you know, some crazy river rafting trip. But we, we went to do this, and it was late in July, and so it was just kind of a, a fun time. You know, those, the days were hot, and it was sunny, and the, the water was cold. And so we decided we were going to do this. We went down and met our guides in this parking lot, where we, then we were going to get in the van and drive off to where we were going to get in the water. Yeah, it's, it seems a little sketchy, right? You're meeting somebody in a vacant parking lot, and then you see the guy, and, you know, he's... In my memory, at least, he's got dreadlocks, and he was shirtless, and he said, dude, a lot, and, you know, let's just be cool, man, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but it was really fun. You know, we're, we're getting in the water. We're having a good time. We're totally joking around because that's with my family. Nothing can be taken seriously, so we're just having a good time, joking around, splashing water at each other. He's trying to teach us the different formations and telling us the difference between a paddle and an oar, which I always thought was the same thing, but he said, no, they're actually very different. So we had paddles, not oars, and so we're getting excited. We're having a good time. We get out in the water, and it's so peaceful. You know, we're thinking river rafting is intense, but we're in there, and it's the Spokane River, you know, so we're just floating along. You know, it's peaceful. It's quiet. Um, there's, we can hear the sounds of the birds and the trees, and the sun is, is in the sky beating down on us, and the water is rushing by, and so we're goofing around. We're jumping in the water, getting out of the raft, and then getting back into the raft afterward, and just having a great time, screwing around, and then suddenly things start to change. 
the water gets a little bit rougher, right? And we notice um, that up ahead, we're coming, we're going through Riverside State Park and we're coming up to Bowling Pitcher. So some of you know what I'm talking about there. At Bowling Pitcher, there's this bridge that goes over these rapids, right? And as we start to get close to there, I'm realizing, and I think most of us are realizing, we're going to have to go through those rapids. And we've seen the jagged rocks and we've seen the rushing water. But, you know, we're still having a good time. We still have a good attitude. We're having a good time. We're splashing each other. We're screwing around. We're hitting each other with the paddles. We're knocking each other out of the boat. Um, the, the guide seems to be having a good time and seems to be still, you know, taking it, taking it easy, having a good time. Man, dude, it's all good. Uh, and then suddenly, when we're in the rapids, we're still kind of laughing, but, you know, our laughing turns from, like, good time laughing to, like, ha, 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 this is really fun, and I hope nobody dies today, and we're getting in there, and it's, and the water is starting to come up over the sides of the raft, and we're starting to feel like we're going to fall in, and the guide is starting to get more and more stern, right? He's like, okay, guys, paddle. I need you to paddle, paddle forward, paddle together, paddle, and then suddenly, you know, we're hearing this, but we're still, you know, having a good time, taking it easy, and then suddenly, I swear, this guy who was so easygoing turns around, and it's like this, paddle, (laughs) and suddenly, we're all silent in the midst of the rapids, and we're like, okay, we're paddling, we're paddling. Some of us are still frozen in fear, and we're telling you, get paddling, he's going to yell at us again. It was really intense. And so we made it through, and then suddenly, you know, we thought that that was going to be the end of our lives and also the end of the trip, but uh, we realized as we get through that, we're back into the peaceful area, you know? And I realized, too, that my grandma is not in the same raft with us. She's in the other one, and she's completely disowned us and pretended that she's just out here on this uh, outing by herself. Here's my point. Sometimes, that's a lot what life can feel like, right? We're just having a good time. Things are going easy. You're joking around. You're kind of at peace. But then all of a sudden, before you know it, things are getting rough. Things are getting difficult. And you start to realize that things are not stable, that the anxiety starts to creep in, the instability of life. You have a lot to be afraid of. You start to realize that what before was, was so easy, now all of a sudden things are difficult and things are scary and you don't know what's going to happen. Eventually you'll make it through. But in that moment, it can be terrifying. It can be so difficult. And so we're going to talk about the peace of God today, because there's a couple different kinds of peace out there. There's the peace of just the world, and that's the kind of peace that you have before and after the rapids, before and after the difficult times. That's a peace that you have when things are going easy, when things don't seem to be out of control and out of hand. But the peace of God is unique, and the peace that we're going to see that Paul talks about in Philippians today is a peace that we can have in the midst of the instability, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of our anxieties and our fears. It's really interesting. Let's look at the scripture together in Philippians chapter 4. Paul says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. First thing we want to say, just looking at this passage, is that God's peace transcends circumstances. God's peace is not like the kind of peace that we might experience just on the day-to-day where things seem peaceful. But God's peace is the peace that we have internally, that we have spiritually in the midst of not peace all around us. It transcends circumstances. It surpasses understanding. And you have to remember what the the people that Paul is writing to, the Philippian church, if they're going to have peace, it only could be peace that transcends circumstances. Think about the thing that they're going through. The one requirement 
for people in the Roman Empire, which is back when Paul's writing this, the one requirement for people who aren't going to be part of the state religion, the pagan religion of Rome, is that they have to bow down to the emperor. Their message was you can believe whatever you want as long as you bend the knee to Caesar. That's the one requirement. Then you're good. Then you're in. Believe whatever you want. Bend the knee to Caesar. The problem is that Christians couldn't do that because they have a Lord, they have a king, they have a master who they bow down to, and they believe that he's the only one that's worthy of that kind of praise and that kind of honor and that kind of adoration. And he's not Caesar, he's Jesus Christ. And so this created a difficult situation for the Christians back in Paul's day, and especially we know that in Philippi, in the city that he's writing to, to this church, this was especially intense because the the religious fervor for the cult of Caesar, bowing down to the emperor, was especially powerful in this one city. And so in the midst of all of this, you know that the the, um, Philippians are persecuted not only by their neighbors— Not only are they looked at as anti-social and anti-patriotic, but they're also suspected by the state. They're starting to be persecuted, not just by individuals, but actually by their own government, who's saying that they can't be trusted, that they're anti-Roman, that they don't fit in here because they don't worship Caesar. They worship this other guy, Christ. And so it's in the midst of all of that that Paul writes this and encourages them to have peace. And when we think about the situation that they're in, you realize that if they're going to have peace, it has to be peace that transcends circumstances. It has to be peace that doesn't actually depend on feeling at peace in the moment, in the uh, the circumstances of life that you're in. Again, in verse 7, he says this, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do you ever have the feeling of peace that can come just in the course of life. For me, it's oftentimes after cleaning the house, right? Everything's clean and it smells good and you can just sit on the couch and be like, oh, I am at peace now. I feel at peace. Everything is right with the world. But the problem with that kind of peace is that it lasts about three seconds before you start to realize all the other problems and the things on your to-do list and what you got to do tomorrow and all the things that are going on. That's the kind of worldly peace. That's the clean house peace, but it's a cheap kind of peace. It's not a lasting kind of peace. And what Paul invites to us here is actually a peace that surpasses understanding. In other words, it's a peace that doesn't make sense. It's a peace that has no business being there. That's the kind of peace that God wants to offer you, the peace of God, which surpasses, which transcends, is unrelated to all understanding. There's no good reason for the peace of God. And so I want to spend uh, the most of our time today looking at what does Paul identify as, as what the peace of God looks like? How does it work out? What do we, when we see peace in a person's life, what does that life of peace marked by God's peace actually look like in the life that they live? And I'm going to identify three things that he uses in this passage to demonstrate sort of what that peace looks like. What are the field markers of God's peace in a person's life? The first one is this, unceasing joy unceasing joy. It goes on forever. It's constant. Look again at what he says in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And so first of all, you know, it, it does seem clear that what Paul's calling for here is not a momentary kind of joy, not a momentary kind of rejoicing that happens based on certain things, but something that is constant. Because he says always. We're called to rejoice always. Again, I will say rejoice. But what I want us to resist here is this temptation that we might have to read this line as be enthusiastic about everything all of the time. Right? Sometimes we can read rejoice in the Lord always and think, well, this means then that Christians have to be people who are happy about everything. 
that they can never be sad, that they can never mourn, that they can never grieve, that they can never be stressed out, but they always have to have a smile on their face. They always have to take everything that comes, good or bad, and turn that into a reason to say, oh, praise God, I'm so happy that this terrible thing has happened to me. In fact, that's not what Paul is calling for. He's calling for something a little bit different. And what we have to do in order to see what he's talking about here is look a little bit deeper in here. He's not calling just for unceasing joy, but for unceasing Jesus-based joy. The joy that we have, that we're called to have without ceasing, the joy that comes that is constant, that where we rejoice always, is a joy that comes, again in verse 4, in the Lord. He doesn't just say rejoice always, be happy always, just smile and be a weird, happy robot all of the time. Instead, he's saying rejoice in the Lord, in something specific. Here's one way to think about this. We don't have a general optimism about the world as Christians. In fact, there's a lot for Christians to be pessimistic about when it comes to the world. Right? We can look around at the world and especially think about sin and rebellion and the harm that we see experienced by so many people in this world. And even the reality that even as we sit here and we worship that, that droves of people are marching on on a trajectory toward hell and toward separation from God. And when we think about those things, are we then supposed to say, oh, yay, oh, that's so great, or just ignore those things and be happy? No, we grieve those things. We weep over those things. We're affected by those, and we feel those things. And so Paul's not saying just be an optimist in all things. He's saying rejoice, not in all things, but in the Lord. There's a story that happens in uh, the book of Luke where Jesus sends his disciples out on this mission. He gathers together 72 of his disciples, so he's got a big crowd of people following him, and he commissions them. He sends them out and he says, go and heal the sick. Go into these towns and preach the good news. Tell them about me. Tell them that their sins are forgiven. Tell them that the kingdom of God has come to earth. And as you do this, he says, you're going to have this power from on high that's going to make you able to heal people of their sicknesses. It's going to make you able to cast out demons. And so he sends them out, and then he continues continues teaching, and then it says this, the disciples returned to Jesus with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And so they're excited. They've just been on this experience, just as Jesus said it would be, that they're going and they're actually able, by commanding these things in the name of Jesus, they're able to heal people of disease. They're able to cast demons out of people. And so it's this amazing demonstration of Jesus' power working through these disciples, through these individuals. But then Jesus replies to them, and look at what he says. He says, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is really interesting because it points us toward what is the kind of joy that Paul is calling us to. It's not just some generalized sense of optimism about the world, but it's actually joy in something very specific. What Jesus says here is, I know it's awesome to say, look at how I'm able to cast a demon out in the name of Jesus Christ. Look at all the success that I'm able to have in the name of Jesus Christ. Look at these things I'm able to do. And we might be tempted to have that same kind of attitude. Look at what I'm able to build. Look at my family that I can rejoice in and the children that I've raised. Look at this church that I'm a part of and the amazing things that it's doing. Look at this opportunity that I had to share the gospel or to meet someone's needs or to serve. And what Jesus says is, that's all great, but that your joy in him Your joy in your salvation and your relationship with him and being made right with God and having your sins forgiven and having your name written in heaven is meant to so far surpass that joy that it puts all other joy to shame. And so when Paul says rejoice in the Lord, he means rejoice in the Lord. 
Rejoice in him. Don't just rejoice in general, but our all-surpassing joy and our constant joy as Christians should be in the fact that we, by the blood of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, are brought back into communion with the Father. That's the thing that's supposed to bring us constant and unceasing joy. It's a Jesus-based joy. Second marker of of peace that we see that Paul outlines here is this unintimidated level-headedness. That's a lot of syllables, so take a moment and write that down if you're taking notes, but it's unintimidated level-headedness. Look at what he says in verse 5. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Something really interesting going on in the language here is that the word reasonableness in Greek has no real good English translation. There's no one word that captures really well what that word means in Greek. And that happens sometimes in the language because the Bible's written in different languages. Sometimes we don't have the perfect word to put in there. And so the the translators of this version that we use, the ESV, chose reasonableness. But when this happens, one of the things we can do to help us understand Scripture is look at how else that same Greek word is used throughout the Bible. So let's do that. What does reasonableness mean? Look at Acts 24.4. Here we have one government official speaking to another. He says, but to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness, reasonableness is the word there, to hear us briefly. And so here is someone begging for sort of patience from someone to say that reasonableness, whatever this word means, it has the concept of patience with it. I beg you in your kindness and your reasonableness and your patience to bear with us. Look at 2 Corinthians 10.1. Paul says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness, that's reasonableness, of Christ. So Paul connects the same word with meekness. So it has the idea of patience and meekness, of of, uh, taking a smaller role, of submitting to authority. Look at these uh, two verses from uh, where Paul is giving description of, uh, of qualifications for leadership in the church. He says in 1 Timothy 3.3, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, reasonable, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. And then in Titus 3, 2, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be, again, gentle or reasonable, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So in these verses, Paul connects this idea of being reasonable to being not violent or divisive in our lives. And then finally, in James 3, 17, James talks about the wisdom of God. He says, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And we could take all of that verse and kind of connect it to what this is, but just to say that reasonableness, whatever this word means, it's connected to being peaceable and open to reason. And so we take all of that together, and the word that I picked is level-headedness, because it kind of has the same idea as we see it used throughout Scripture. It has this idea that we're, we're calm, cool, and collected in the world. We are level-headed no matter what comes. We're patient. We're um, meek. We're not violent or divisive. We're peaceable. We're open to reason. And so that's what Paul is calling for. But what does that attitude have to do with peace? Well, let's look again at verse 5. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. So this attitude, this level-headedness is meant to be known to everyone. And you have to think about this. Who is the everyone that Paul's talking about here? Because remember, he's writing to a group of people in a specific church in Philippi. So if he's writing to those people and he's saying, you let your reasonableness, your patience, your gentleness, your meekness, etc., be known to everyone, he's talking about those outside of the church. In other words, we remember that those outside of the church, a good portion of them are those who are persecuting the Philippians. 
And so I believe what Paul is calling us to here is to have that kind of level-headedness that's epitomized by all of those different words that we looked at and to have it in such a way that we're not intimidated by pressure from the outside. In other words, he's not telling us just be cool, guys, just take it easy. Instead, he's saying that we need to have a certain attitude toward persecution, toward opposition, toward pressure from the outside, toward hatred and insults. He's saying be reasonable, be gentle, be patient, be meek, be nonviolent, don't be divisive, be peaceable, and be open to reason and all of those things. And so as they are receiving pressure, they are to have this attitude. And then we're kind of left to ask the question, why is it that Paul would ask this of this people? That as they're under this enormous pressure, at best they're seen as outsiders and weirdos, at worst they're seen as enemies of the state, how can Paul say, in the midst of all of that, don't be intimidated, but keep your head, stay level-headed, be reasonable, be gentle, be kind? Well, it's actually because Paul knows something here that makes all the difference. Look at uh, what, what this really is, is not just unintimidated level-headedness, but unintimidated Jesus-expecting level-headedness. Look again at verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And so Paul, in encouraging them to this strange kind of attitude to have when you are beset by persecution, when you are pushed down by people who want to harm you, this attitude that he calls them to have is entirely based on this phrase, the Lord Jesus is at hand. What does Paul mean there? Well, he has at least a couple things in mind. Remember that uh, the Christians in this time were mocked by the Romans for worshiping a, a Christ, a Lord, a King who wasn't visible there to them. They believe that Jesus Christ has ascended, that he's gone into heaven, that he's at the right hand of the Father in heaven and we're awaiting his return. But the Romans would say, well, look, we worship Caesar and he's right there and he's got all the power, he's got all the money, he's got all the ability to go in and to conquer these lands. He is clearly the Lord. And Christians say, no, we believe in a Lord who you can't see, you can't necessarily tell what he's doing in this world because he's working in our hearts and he's working through us. He took the form of a servant. And so you have this contrast. Well, Paul reminds them the Lord Jesus, that Lord is at hand. In other words, maybe you don't see him present physically here with us, but he's present through the Holy Spirit. He is not far off, but he is near to us. He lives within us through the Spirit. But not only that, but that even though he is physically at the right hand of the Father now, he is coming back, and when he comes, he'll bring his kingdom with him. And so this is a huge promise that Paul draws our attention to here. And this is entirely the reason that in the midst of persecution, we don't have to fight back. We don't have to get angry. We don't have to run and duck for cover because we have a Lord who is all-powerful, who is the Lord of all creation, is the creator of all things, and who someday is coming back to bring his kingdom, to make an end to sin, and to allow us to be with him in his presence forever and ever and ever. And so it's not just unintimidated level-headedness. It is expecting Jesus. As we expect him, we keep our heads and we continue forward in the work that Christ has given us to do. Finally, unworried prayer. Unworried prayer is a sign of the peace of God that works within us. Look at verse 6. Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known 
to God. And so Paul here is talking about this attitude that is reflexively, that reflexively moves toward prayer. That when we deal with things that make us anxious, that we're not anxious, but we instead turn to God and we submit those requests to him. Look at what he says again, the effect that this prayerful life has on us in verse 6, that we are not anxious about anything. That he says that the opposite of being anxious and worrying about all the things that I have going on in my life is instead to take those things and to submit them as requests to the God of peace. That that's the solution. Instead of worrying, instead of dealing with them, instead of holding on to them and grinding all over them in my mind, instead I am meant to turn to God to submit them and to lay them at his feet because he has the power to deal with them. And so it's not just unworried prayer, but it is unworried, Jesus-confident prayer. And there's a really interesting word that Paul uses in here. I don't know if you caught it before in verse 6. He says, in everything by prayer and supplication with what? Thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. It's really interesting that Paul would tell us to pray, and in other words, to ask God for something with thanksgiving. Because normally we would think about thanksgiving as the thing that comes after the prayer and after God has answered the prayer, right? After we've said, God, I need this, or I ask you to intervene and do this, and then we can see that God has done something or given us something or helped us in some way, and then we can say, and so I praise you. Thank you, God. Thank you for doing that for me. So we normally think of thanksgiving as something that comes after prayer, but Paul tells us to submit our prayers with thanksgiving, And so what's going on there? Well, it actually has everything to do with what prayer is all about. Prayer isn't just about getting what we want from God. And I don't want to downplay the power of prayer because we believe that God works through the prayer of righteous people, people who are in Christ, that he hears us, that he responds to us, that there is power in prayer. And yet, sometimes we focus too much on prayer as a transactional thing. We say, I come to Jesus, I ask for what I want, and he gives it to me. When in reality, something even deeper and more powerful is going on when we come into prayer. Prayer is about giving our worries and our fears and our hopes and our desires over to God and entrusting them to him. So that's why we can be thankful. We can be thankful because whether or not God's going to give us what we want, whether his answer to our, to our prayer is going to be yes or no, or we're never going to feel like we got an answer to prayer, we actually still can be thankful because in the act of taking what's bothering us, taking what we need and laying it before God, we may not get what we want, but you always get the peace of God. You always get his peace. He always delights to fulfill that promise and offer to you as you submit your worries to him the peace that surpasses all understanding. And I can tell you from experience, even, you know, even as I look out and I see people who have lived, have lived a lot longer than me, have walked with Jesus a lot longer than me, I can tell you in my experience that when I come to Jesus and I, ex- and I express to him what's bothering me, and I've had many things that I've asked for from God and things where I've, I've asked God to heal people, I've asked God to save people, to reveal himself to them, I've asked God for things that I needed to open opportunities, open doors to me, to heal relationships, to guide me, to give me assurance. I've asked God for so many things over the years, and I don't always get what I ask for. And you won't either. You won't always get what you ask for. But I guarantee you that as you come to Jesus Christ, you will get his peace. You will get his peace. Because in turning to Jesus, you put whatever your problem is, you put it in the right hands. And isn't there something freeing about that? To know, even with human problems, 
to know, I may not know the solution to this, but I know the person to turn to. I know the person who will know the solution to this. I know whose hands this, this uh, problem belongs in. Well, with God, anything that we're not able to handle for ourselves belongs in his hands because there is nothing that is impossible for him. And so we pray, but only because we are confident in Jesus Christ. So I want to tie all of this together here. Paul ties these four different things together. He ties together God's peace, joy, level-headedness, and prayer. But our question should be, how are these things all connected? Is this just some random list? As we're getting toward the end of Philippians, Paul's like, oh yeah, I want to make sure I mention that, and oh yeah, I should say something about joy and peace and prayer. Or are they all connected in some way? Well, this is the way that I'm personally tempted to think about these things, this, this uh, model here, that you have joy and patience and prayer or level-headedness and prayer and all the three of those things that as we work those things out, as we try to live out those principles and live out those things that God calls us to in this scripture, that God builds that prayer in our lives, that these are the disciplines that we engage in and therefore God gives us more and more peace, that as I rejoice in God, that I remember my salvation, that I work hard to remember that I'm rejoicing at all times, that I receive more peace from God. As I'm more patient and level-headed and I remember that Jesus is coming back for me, he gives me more peace, that it builds that peace in my life. That even, even as I pray to God, as I express things to him, it builds the peace. I'm feeding myself with more and more peace. Well, the problem with this is that as, we, as you've noticed, as we've gone through this passage, every single thing that Paul brings up in here, he ties back to what? To Jesus Christ. That these are not things that primarily I am meant to drum up within myself. They're not things that I'm meant to just try to find some joy, try to fake some joy, try to find some patience, find some prayer, to try to engage in things when I don't feel like it, but actually that all of these things are connected back to Jesus Christ. And so the better way to think about this would be like this, that Jesus comes into our lives. Give me the second chart there. Second chart up on the screen, please. There we go. So Jesus comes into our lives. He offers us peace. That's the message that we get here, that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, that there's no reason for it. So we can't say that the peace of God is something that I can put all of these things like an equation together and then expect to have more of in my life, because that doesn't surpass understanding. That fits right in with my understanding. Instead, the peace of God is something that comes only from him, only from Jesus, that as we receive him, he offers us peace, and then that peace works out in all of these virtues that we've seen. We have joy from the peace of God in Jesus Christ, in our salvation. We're level-headed and we're patient through our expectation of Jesus Christ. And we have prayer to Jesus in thanksgiving regardless of what the result will be. But even this is actually missing something key. And don't worry, you don't have to draw the whole thing again if you're taking notes. Simply, we need to connect the bottom things here back up to the top. You see that joy and patience and prayer are the results, the expressions of God's peace in my life. But then as I engage in those things, as I'm joyful, I'm joyful in Jesus. And so it drives me back to him. As I'm patient, I'm patient because I look forward to the fact that Jesus is bringing his kingdom, that he will make an end to sin, that he will reign forever, that I will have communion with the Father through him. And that drives me back to him. That even as I pray, I'm praying to the Father through Jesus Christ with all the expectation knowing that even if Jesus doesn't give me what I want, that I know I receive him and I get more of him. 
And that drives us back through the cycle, that as we're driven back to Jesus, he gives more peace. And that peace leads to more joy and more patience and more prayer. And that drives me back to Jesus again. And then I receive more peace. And so you have this cycle that is entirely based on the gift of God, Jesus Christ, who brings us this supernatural, all-understanding, surpassing peace that drives us to these, to these things that we do in our lives that then drive us back to Jesus Christ. This is the life of peace that God wants to offer to you. And it is a peace that surpasses understanding. It is a peace that transcends circumstances. It is a peace that you can have in the calm and in the chaos. It's a peace that you can have when nothing makes sense, when there's no reason for you to have peace. You can have peace, but only through Jesus Christ. And so the main thing here, and the only thing, if you're going to take one thing away today, the one thing that I want you to take away is that Jesus is the key to peace, and him alone. But there's no other way in this world to have that kind of peace that Jesus talks about apart from him himself. As you receive him, he will give you that peace. Again, as you come to him in prayer and you lay your worries and cares at his feet, you may not get what you're asking for, but I promise you, you will always, always, always get his peace. He will all, you will always feel that feeling that whatever this thing that's bothering me is, whatever it is, whatever the problem is, I know that I can trust God with it because he can handle anything.